the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. God had proven himself time and time again as a merciful and just God. He had provided for the nation of Israel even when they had rebelled against him. Thousands of people had died in the desert wilderness because of their hard hearts and unbelief in God's word. In chapter 18, God had confirmed with the Israelites by way of the miraculous that Aaron was to be the high priest. God had caused Aaron's rod to bloom full of flowers and almonds. Then God gave Aaron and the Levites more instructions on how they were to conduct themselves and to be set apart for the work in the tabernacle. We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 19, verse 1. The whole theme of the book of Numbers is Israel's journeying with the Lord, and therefore it's teaching us about our journey with Jesus and how to do it right, how to go on this journey with the Lord that is our life and our relationship with Him. And Israel's not been in the best place lately. And yet, through the miracle of Aaron's budding rod, God has settled the question of who he chose for the priesthood, and he's hopefully quieted their murmurings. And he closed that whole scenario by reminding them that as long as the priests were obedient to him, that's what chapter 18 is about, as long as the priests were doing their job, the people could approach the tabernacle to fix things with God even in their worst moments. Given the recent circumstances, many had died. God had sent a plague amongst the people. Prior to that, men had died right in front of the tabernacle. Because of this, many were made unclean from proximity to a dead body. And some of those that had died right there in front of the tabernacle, they had made the tabernacle unclean. So both the tabernacle and the people needed to be cleansed. And chapter 19 covers how to remedy that problem. So chapter 19, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. And you shall give her unto Eliezer the priest, that he may bring her forth outside the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. He has to watch it happen. Eliezer the priest shall take of her blood with his finger and sprinkle it of her blood, but directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. So here we see the remedy for the tabernacle. It may have occurred in, in Christian circles, one of the popular things that run around every once in a while is the ashes of the red heifer. Israel's found the ashes of the red heifer. Jesus is coming back or something like that. And we'll get into that a little bit tonight, but I want to give the clear teaching of the passage here first, all right? The remedy for the tabernacle comes before the remedy to cleanse the people. And it says here what they're to bring. It says a red heifer without spot and wherein is no blemish and upon which never came yoke. Now, the red there refers to like the reddish brown type of a, a cow. And this is, because it's a heifer, it means it's a female adolescent cow, usually about two years old. It'd be right about the time before you would start putting them to work as a beast of burden. That's why it adds on one that never had been used for plowing. So it had to be one that they didn't start them early because they were short on plowing animals or something like that. 
In addition, it could not have any spot. That would be a birth defect or handicap. It couldn't have one eye missing or couldn't have a couple extra hooves or something like that. It had to be physically without blemish, without defect. And then also it says, I'm sorry, without spot refers to the birth handicap. Blemish refers to an injury. For example, you know, lots of our animals, they get clipped. They clip their ear to put a number on them or something like that. They could not have done that to the animal. The animal would not be able to have any birth defect nor any injury that had been done to it over the course of its short little life. And it could never have done any work. So that's what they're to bring. And what do they do with her? Well, verse three, and you shall give her unto Eliezer, the priest. Now that's interesting because who's the high priest? Aaron, right? Not Eliezer. So the high priest would not be the one to oversee this. The next in line would be. Whoever his next in line, family-wise, who would take over if he died, he would be the one to oversee this. And so that one would go outside the camp with the red heifer, and one, not the uh, priest, but someone else, will kill her while he watches to make sure that things are done correctly. And then after she bleeds out, Eliezer, the priest, she dies. She will take of her blood with his finger and he'll come and he'll sprinkle it or spatter it. It says directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. What's interesting here is that normally all offerings would be slain at the tabernacle entrance, but that was what was defiled by this thing. They could not do that here. In any time that the tabernacle would be defiled, and you think, when would that happen again? It's interesting. We go through Israel's history, find that Hezekiah has to cleanse the temple. We find that Josiah has to cleanse the temple. This is a a thing that would have to be repeated throughout Israel's history because of their sin and defiling the tabernacle. There were times, I think in Josiah's day, where they actually put idols inside the temple. And so that had to be completely cleansed for use again, ritually. Because of that, the slaying would have to be done outside the whole camp of Israel because inside was all yuck. Once he would bring the blood and he would spatter it there at the entrance to the tabernacle, that would cleanse it and they could begin to use it again to repair their relationship with God. Now, what about the people who were defiled? Well, we get to them in verse five. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight, Eliezer's sight. So after he takes the blood and he spatters it in front of the tabernacle door entrance, he'll come back. And when he comes back, they will burn the heifer in his sight. He'll watch it, her skin, her flesh, her blood. So no meats to be used for food at all. The whole thing, like a burnt offering, is to be consumed right there. With her dung, everything, shall he burn it. And now Eliezer, or the next in command's job, is that as that's burning, he needs to take cedar wood, hyssop branches, it's like a mint type of a branch, very leafy, and scarlet, and he would cast that into the middle of the burning of the heifer. So he would take these three things and throw them into the fire where it was being burned. Now, because this was for purification, none of it would be eaten or offered on the altar. That's why it's all burned. It has a specific purpose. But what's interesting is this is not the first time we've seen these three ingredients. Remember, these are the same ingredients that were used in the recipe required for a leper who'd been healed to re-enter society. When he was cleansed of his leprosy and he wanted to re-enter society, the priest would go out and he'd examine him and go, okay, you look healed. And he would make this concoction with the exception, no ashes of the red heifer. But he'd make this concoction of the cedar wood, the hyssop branches, and the scarlet. It's like a, a dye they get from worms. And they would mix it into the water and that would be used. They would cleanse themselves with it. They would sprinkle themselves with it for their cleansing, and then they would be able to re-enter society and be ritually clean and worship the Lord in the tabernacle again. So he does the same thing here. The people are going to be purified. It's a little different, but similar concept. So they can re-enter society after having been 
touched a dead body. Now, after the concoction is made, verse 7, then the priest, in this case, Eliezer, he will wash his clothes and he shall bathe his flesh in water. And afterward, he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until the evening. So he has to take a bath. He can come back into the camp, but he can't serve in the tabernacle. He'll be unclean until the day is over. And then also the guy who did the work, he that burns her, he also has to wash his clothes in water and he has to bathe his flesh in water and he'll be unclean until the evening. And why is that? The idea is that in this ritual, the impurity of the tabernacle and of the nation is transferred to this red heifer. So anyone who was in contact with the red heifer would become unclean for that day. They would have to be out of use from a ritualistic perspective for that day. What do they do with the concoction? Verse nine, and a man that is clean. So now another third individual, he'll come out and he shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and mingled with all this stuff, the hyssop branches of the scarlet and the cedar wood. He'll gather them all up and then he'll lay them up outside the camp in a clean place. And it shall be kept for the congregation of, of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It is a purification of sin. So he'd take this concoction and he would mix it with water and he would put it into a safe place to be preserved for anyone who ever got defiled by coming into contact with a dead body. And so it would be kept there. And, and of course, obviously when the concoction would run out, they'd have to do the ritual again and make the, the water of purification again. And then it would be out there for anyone who became defiled with contact by contact with a dead body. It calls it here a water of separation. The word there actually separation means defilement or impurity. It's a water for the purpose of cleansing defilement from in contact with a dead body. It is a purification for sin or literally a sin offering. What will they do with this water? Verse 11, he that touches the dead body of any man shall be unclean for seven days. We learned earlier in Leviticus 21.1 that the priest could not ever go near a dead body. Here we see that it also rendered anyone else who was near a dead body unclean. And so they would be unclean for seven days. They would have to go outside the camp. But differently than just anyone else who was unclean, Notice the rules here, verse 12. He shall purify himself with it, this water of separation, the water of defilement on the third day. The idea is that the heifer already paid your penalty for this. So as a result, you will be purified by the water. It'd be an act of faith that you would believe God would accept you again because you participated in this water. I don't know if they would sprinkle them with it, if they take a bath with it. My guess is they sprinkled them with it uh, because it would have to last for everybody. On the seventh day then, so do it on the third day, you cleanse yourself with it. And then on the seventh day, he shall be clean. You can go back in. But if he doesn't purify himself on the third day, then the seventh day, he shall not be clean. I mean, you can go back into the camp, but you can't worship the Lord. Whosoever touches, verse 13, the dead body of any man that is dead, to clarify, he's really dead. If he does that, but he does not purify himself, well, then he comes into the tabernacle. Guess what? He defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. So that soul shall be cut off from Israel because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. To re-enter, they would have a slightly different ritual than other means of uncleanness that we saw in Leviticus. But they needed to go through it and they'd be fine. Now, if they didn't do it, they could pretend to go in and everything was fine after their seven days. But the truth is the Lord says, you're not fine. And if you come into my tabernacle like that, you will be put to death. It's a capital crime. God's presence cannot endure sin and the wages of sin is death. 
And so the very contact with a dead body is bringing the effects of sin into his presence, which cannot occur. We learned a little bit about that this morning as we looked at the idea that we even need a new body, has not had any contact with the sinful world to enter into God's presence because he's holy. I don't think we fully understand that, like his holiness. We try to say, okay, he's holy, he's perfect, he's righteous, he's you know, sinless. But I don't think we really understand what that means. I don't think we really understand what it means to approach a holy God. God is pure, he's a consuming fire. And as such, you know, sin is consumed in his presence. Now, how close does someone have to be to a dead body to be unclean? Well, we get to that in verse 14. This is the law. When a man dies in a tent, all that come inside the tent and all that are already in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. So if you're inside the tent and you wake up and Uncle Mortimus is dead, then as a result, you are unclean. If you come in to deliver the mail that day and go, hey, Mrs. Mortimus, and she's crying, you go, what's going on? Mort died today. Guess what? You got to go outside the camp too. Tough luck, buddy. Don't be a mailman. It's a risky business. So anyone who came inside the tent, they would be unclean for seven days. Verse 15, every open vessel which does not have a covering bound upon it, does not have the lid cap upon it, it is also unclean. We learned about that in Leviticus, that objects could become unclean. and They could be cleansed or they had to be destroyed depending upon what kind of vessel. So because it was already covered in Leviticus, Moses doesn't cover that here. And then verse 16, whosoever touches one that is slain with the sword in the open fields, let's say you're just plowing your fields and you come across somebody that was killed in battle, Well, tough luck, buddy. You're unclean for seven days. Or a dead body. It just dies of itself. Someone had a heart attack out in the field that didn't have to be killed by anybody else. Or even just the bone of a man. Or you stumble upon a grave. Either way, you are unclean for seven days. Stay away from the dead. This still doesn't tell us exactly what to do with the water mixture. Well, verse 17, I'm glad you asked. And for an unclean person, they will take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin and running water shall be put thereto in a vessel. So you take this concoction and you can't just take any kind of water. You can't take well water. It needs to be added to running water. So they would take basically a vessel and put it by a brook or a stream or something where there's living water, water that's moving in motion, not stagnant water. And you would scoop that up and then you would take this ash concoction and you'd dump it in the water and then you would be able to to use it to cleanse the person. And so it says in verse 18, And a clean person shall take hyssop. This would be like that mint branch, very leafy. And they would dip it in the water and they would sprinkle it upon the tent, upon all the vessels, and upon the persons that were there. And upon him that touched a bone or someone who was slain or one that was dead or if he touched the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and then on the seventh day as well. And then on that seventh day, he shall purify himself, take a bath, wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and then he shall be clean at the evening. At 6 p.m., he can go back into the camp and resume life and worship as normal. The key thing is living water, not stagnant, like a well. It had to be a moving water. And then verse 20, the warning again, but the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of separation, that Water of impurity has not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. And it shall be, this this law is a perpetual statute unto you. This is not just to fix this one problem that we had over the last few days, Moses. This is what you'll do to fix any of these situations that come up throughout your entire history. This will be a perpetual statute unto them, that he that sprinkles the water of separation 
He's the guy who the clean person does that. Well, then he's got to wash his clothes. And he that touches the water of separation, he'll also be unclean until the evening. And whatsoever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. So if they are ritually unclean and they touch something, even though they weren't in proximity to the dead body, guess what? That's unclean too. It spreads. It's uh, kind of like a zombie apocalypse, but not quite. Everything spreads though. And the soul that touches it shall be unclean until the evening. Every time we've come across some of these laws or these rituals in the Old Testament, I've tried to say, okay, remember, Jesus is the fulfilling of the law, right? We talked about that this morning. So how does this point to Christ and how does it apply to us? I find it fascinating that the water that had to be used was living water, right? Because Jesus used that phrase in John chapter 7 when he said that, Oh, you who are thirsty, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and out of his innermost being will gush rivers of living water. And then John tells us that he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. So we know that living water is a phrase used for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Spirit is the one who convicts us when we sin, and he's the one who brings us to that place of cleansing, the blood of Christ, right? He's the one that brings us there. He is the living water that Jesus promised to us that keeps us coming to the cross in repentance, right? So we see a picture of that there. Secondly, I think it's fascinating that a clean person had to do the sprinkling, and that's Jesus. You know, you and I, we can't cleanse ourselves. We can't do good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds or to make up for our bad deeds. We have to come to the clean one. We have to come to the one who was never tainted by sin, Jesus himself. See, any effort to cleanse myself and my own righteousness will fail. But if I come to the one who is always clean, I can always find the restoration I need. Amen? And that's cool, because in this day, you might have had to find a clean person, especially with all the mess they'd been through. But Jesus, he's always there. That's why the Bible says, let us draw near. Let's come. There's nothing to hinder us from coming. I need to find a clean person. No, Jesus is always clean. He's always righteous. He's always there. He's always able to cleanse. So we can always come to find help in our time of need. Thirdly, if you, by faith, did not exercise this ritual and just walk back into camp, guess what? You were cut off. Any effort to approach the Lord in an unclean state is an abomination. To approach God on the basis of your good works, that is offensive to God. To say, well, you know, God, I know I've sinned, but my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds. First off, the Lord's going, I can do math. No, they don't. Secondly, the Lord's going, how does that make up for the wrong things you did? How do you expect me to deal with that? That is arrogant. It's offensive. And pride, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Remember that parable that Jesus told about how the guy said, hey, my son's getting married. Tell everybody that I invited to come. The feast is about to happen. And so the the steward went out, the servant went out and he started saying, hey, the master's gonna have the feast. Come on down. And they said, ah, we're too busy. We got this going on. We got that going on. They gave all sorts of excuses. And the master was angry. And so he said to the servant, go out and just get get anybody you can. My son's gonna have a special wedding. Get anybody you can. And they did. They rounded up the poor people, the beggars, anybody they could. And so they threw the feast. But notice the parable. It's not over yet. At the end of the parable, the master finds a guy who's dressed in his own clothing. When you would be invited, like you're invited to a wedding these days, you bring your own clothes. But there would be special clothes you'd be given back then so that you couldn't be a wedding crasher, okay? You could not be a party crasher. You belonged. You were invited. So the idea is that if you were wearing the clothes that identified you as belonging there. Well, they saw some guy who was wearing his own clothes. And the master said, what's he doing here? He came to the feast on his own. And the master said, cast him out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because he doesn't bear the right clothes. Now we know that Jesus has clothed us in what? His righteousness. 
So if I try to walk into heaven on the basis of my own righteousness, guess what? You're not going to make it. So you'll be cut off. So don't try to do that. And it's sad that many profess their good works as a means of getting to heaven, but that's an impossibility. And if you show up on the great white throne judgment expecting to be let in on the basis of your good behavior, you're going to be in for the shock of your life, the shock of your eternity. But lastly, I thought it was interesting that it mentions that whosoever touches the unclean person shall become unclean. And you know what that shows me? Sin doesn't just affect me. I hear lots of people that say, oh, it just affects me. If I destroy my own life, that's just what I'm doing. No, your sin affects everyone in your life. And it's selfish and naive to justify your sin because it only hurts me. It's selfish and naive to do so. Well, you might be saying, wait a second, Pastor Will, you can't go on to chapter 20 without dealing with this whole ashes of the red heifer thing. What about prophecy? What about prophecy? Well, anytime the tabernacle and later on the temple became defiled, this ritual of, of chapter 19 needed to take place. So, guess what? Before Israel can ever rebuild their temple in our day or in the future, they need to do this ritual. All right, no big deal. Go get a red cow and kill them, right? Wrong. The rabbis have incredibly strict definitions of what it means without spot, what it means without blemish, and what it means that no yoke could ever rested upon it. So when Israel became a nation again in 1948, and later on the Temple Institute was founded, and they were planning to rebuild the temple, go to their website, they've already got certain things. They've already got a whole group of people trained to do the priestly work. They've already got these things in place. But they began to scour the world for a red heifer that would fit the requirements of the rabbis. I might be saying, Pastor Will, how hard is that to be? I got to see red cows, you know, at, at the farm and stuff. What are you talking about? See, the problem is our cows have been blemished by ear clips. They can't be used. Plus, they've been interbred with other breeds of cow. And that means they're not pure. Now, the Temple Institute thought they had found one in 1997 and again in 2002, which is where you heard all this hubbub in Christian circles, but both were found to not be kosher. They have mapped out the genetics on how to birth one, but they've been unsuccessful in trying to make it happen. There's farms in Israel where they're trying to make this happen. They've imported tons of reddish-brown Angus cows, but they keep turning up with either a white or black hair in places showing that their genes are not pure and therefore they cannot be used. Therefore, they're disqualified. Reports of a red heifer already in the possession of the Jews are mostly fabrications in Christian news circles. I dare say, if there's any label that deserves Christian, uh, fake news, it's Christian news. I don't know why we buy this stuff. I hear people come to me all the time and, guess what, guess what, this happened. And I'm like, do you, I, mean, I remember there was a time they like, they found bones of the giants. And I'm like, bones of the giants? They found them, Pastor Will, I swear it. And there has at, at least once a month, somebody comes to me with one of those cockamamie ideas. Pastor Will, you know, Jesus is coming back this week. They, they, they found this. And I go, okay. And then I go and find out, no, it's a hoax. Somebody's taking pictures. I remember what it was, it like six years ago was the ark. They found the ark. They've dated the ark perfectly to the right time. No, they hadn't. It turned up that this Christian group used just one of their tests that came back and they said, oh, this is the correct one. When seven other ones said it was from a boat that was only a century old. Be very careful about what you read on the internet because it's not just unsafe people who are looking for clicks and advertisement dollars, all right? 
there are those who profess the name of Christ who are doing the same. And many of those end time websites are not reliable. So be very careful with how much you peruse them. Reports of a red heifer already in their possession are mostly fabrications in Christian news. Will they eventually find one? They have to. They'll eventually get one because the Bible teaches clearly in both the Old and the New Testament that the temple will be rebuilt before Messiah returns to rule and reign. That Antichrist will set up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies of that temple. So they're going to find it, all right? They will make it happen eventually. A holy and perfectly righteous God cannot have sin in his presence. The two are incompatible. In 1 John chapter 1, it says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God takes sin very seriously, but thankfully, we don't have to let it keep us away from God. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can stand before God completely justified and assured that our penalty is paid in full. We have complete pardon for our sins because of Jesus. God desires to bless you with more of His presence. Don't let sin get in the way of that. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.